Welcome, everyone. This is the Council of Institutional Investors Educational Podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. This episode is entitled Investors Beware, the Application and Risks of Delaware General Corporate Law Sections 204 and 205 on Defective Corporate Acts. Our special guest is Andrew Franklin, the president of UTR LLC, a public and private equity investor focusing on small cap companies and consumer discretionary and durable goods manufacturers. Welcome, Mr. Franklin. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Mr. Franklin, please provide us with some background and an overview of sections 204 and 205 of the Delaware General Corporation Law addressing defective corporate acts. Yeah, it's uh, good to be here to discuss what's going on in Delaware. And, you know, in past, I think in 2013, but effective uh, as of April of 2014, the General Assembly of Delaware enabled these quote unquote fix it statutes to permit Delaware corporations to fix corporate actions that were taken, but where legal formalities had been botched. The idea was to provide relief for these technical mistakes, which would wreak havoc for corporations when they were understood at some later date, say in merger due diligence or whatnot. Historically, these errors were kind of had outsized consequences. So uh, what this generally meant was that practitioners in Delaware were fastidious about corporate formalities. So were, so too were corporate boards. So they would get it right the first time because Delaware's focus historically has always been to maintain absolute clarity with respect to the corporation's you know, capital structure, equity capital structure. So the statutes empower the Chancery Court for the first time to fix what they termed failures of authorization. So this is essentially stock you know, with defects in it that was issued without formal writing or a board resolution to commemorate it, or where statutorily required sequencing of a corporate action was, was done out of the formally prescribed order in the code. So, Mr. Franklin, you've been involved in litigation in the Delaware courts regarding Sections 204 and 205. The case you were involved in is Almond versus Glenhill. Could you give us some background and overview of the Almond case and how the decisions of the Delaware courts in your case have impacted the application of the Defective Corporate Act provisions of of Delaware law? Yeah, you bet, Jeff. Um, What's interesting about this case is that it's the collision of these fix-it statutes with corporate contracting. So the part of the case that in particular intersected between sections 204 and 205 uh, dealt with only one thing, which was a breach of contract. And whether, after having admitted that the contract is unmistaken, unambiguous, and that its plain language means what it says, may a Delaware corporation, you know, nevertheless, use the statutes to retroactively rewrite that clear contract's economic terms. You know, the answer now, unfortunately, after my case is yes, believe it or not. Uh, And this is why I wanted to alert investors uh, as to the new landscape or the shifting landscape, at least in Delaware. So my case uh, centered around a preferred stock contract, a certificate of designation which entitled the controlling stockholder to 55,000 shares. However, the controller breached that contract and and issued itself millions more shares than the contract explicitly gave it. So the corporation came to court and argued that the statutes, uh, under the statutes rather, that the intent at the time of contracting is now irrelevant. 
and that all that mattered was the intent at the time of the breach. Moreover, it told the Delaware Supreme Court that it needn't, quote, plead or prove equitable claims, unquote, under the statute. So the example it even gave the, the Supreme Court was that, you know, the equitable reformation that happened in this case, because it, there was no parole evidence, there was no proving of the equitable claim, they just wanted to cure the share issuance that was the breach at issue. Um, the mechanism, though, is interesting as how they were able to rewrite the contract, and this is perhaps even more disturbing than the inability for investors to enforce these clear contracts, because I think it's even more broad. It's important to note, by way of a slight digression, that the relief sought here was solely a rewrite of the economic provisions of a duly adopted contract. That's to say that this has nothing to do with the reverse splits described in the opinion, uh, and the breach of contract was not and could not ever be under the statutes considered a quote-unquote overissue, and the notion of overissue was never avered by any party. Um, nor was there any void act here. Previously, that was a required predicate to invoke the statutes as well. But with that digression in mind, uh, Chancellor Bouchard permitted the corporation just to go back beyond the record and, you know, using air quotes, ratify a contract amendment based on an alternative version of history that the company admitted never happened and was never even contemplated at any time. This new use of ratification is unknown to Delaware jurisprudence before this case. So, you know, via ratification of an act that never happened, the corporation was allowed to go back in time and affect a contract amendment, and this is accounting for roughly 40% of the company's shares now, but affect that amendment without negotiation and without paying any consideration for the economic changes, the drastic economic changes that it that affected. So to, to, to make this kind of craziness come to life, I think the timeline is, is remarkable and, 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 and illustrates it well. Uh, the corporation in 2016 used the ratification to go back six years to 2010 to bind this amendment that never occurred without negotiation or consideration, as we discussed, uh, upon the shares that had already been canceled in 2014. So uh, it was a little bit like whiplash as a stockholder because all of a sudden, even though my shares had been canceled in a merger, uh, they were now, I was now being held to a different charter and uh, stockholder covenant and, and contract than had been extant when, when I was a shareholder. So, Mr. Franklin, given the decisions you just described in, in your case, so what do you see as the main risks for institutional investors going forward as a result of uh, the Delaware court decisions uh, in your action? Well, you know, um, when, when this all started, I was reading up on Delaware and it, it was, you know, famously known as the, the most contractarian or one of the most contractarian states in the in the country and a place where investors could reliably go and enforce the terms of their agreements. Uh, you know, and I, I don't think that's the case anymore. It could be the case any longer given these kinds of powers to courts to um, just rewrite contracts. So, the, the you know, as an investor, the inability to enforce the clear contract combined with with, you know, the idea that you can make up the record as you go results in this massive power grab uh, by corporations at the expense of both investors, but just more generally corporate governance. There are no rules, really, at that point. 
you know, so, you know, one of the small parts of the, of the ruling was the idea that you don't need to, uh, you can abandon rather, I guess, the fact that there's a void act at issue here. There was none. It was never argued. But when you pair that with, um, with, you know, the idea that you can look at to intent of a contract at the time of breach rather than contracting. Delaware courts essentially have, have um, you know, stretched these laws beyond their breaking point, and, and that's what is going to give these investors a lot of heartburn when they when they look at what what they're able to do in court. So, you know, this ruling essentially it makes contracts optional to one side of the agreement. And that turns everything upside down because, again, the corporation can rely and create a historical record that never existed at the time and can tell you that the only intent was what they were thinking at the breach point, not at the uh, time they entered the contract. So, you know, I suspect that Delaware corporations will feel empowered to breach contracts at a time of their choosing. And then investors would have to scramble and spend years of time and resources to seek to enforce it. But But here's the most interesting and most important takeaway, I think. Uh, even if an investor went to go enforce that contract, the contract's terms or even the common law will not matter. Under this ruling, the only the purported equities behind the breach of the contract will be the decisive factor, and that'll be determined by, by one judge. You know, and there's some structural things, too, that investors should, should be aware of. Um, under Section 204, it's, it's the, the quote-unquote self-help part of the statutes. Uh, corporations may ratify these changes without judicial review. They do it on their own. They just file certificates with the Secretary of State. So if it's understood the time of, of the change, the statute only provides 120 days to investors to challenge these ratifications. So to ensure that you get notice as an investor, you need to hold your shares as a record holder. The statute provides only for record holders to be noticed, not those investors that hold their stock in the street. Obviously, you know, you have to police these contractual rights that you've you've uh, taken on when you bought the shares of the company, but you can't do that if you don't know that they're being changed. So, you know, this externality, I think, is you know, creates a ton of inefficiency and it's very burdensome on, on institutions, but if they want to get ahead of this, they need to be record holders. And lastly, you know, because the precedent no longer requires that a corporate action be void. Uh, Delaware courts permitted the statutes to be invoked to alter, quoting statute now, quote, any agreement to which the corporation is a party, unquote. So the breadth of this ruling under that provision of the statute is hard to understate. It's going to invite, I think, untold mischief with any contractual obligation a corporation may come to find unwelcome at a later date, as was the case in my case where they had issued more stock than they were permitted. So, for example, I expect negative covenants, credit agreements for distressed companies to be altered more favorably to management's liking. And this can be done under the statutes without notice at all to creditors. So, you know, this will harm investors, I think equity investors, by incentivizing managements to, to, to you know, recklessly bet the ranch. And that it's caused a lot, it just will cause a lot of tumult. When creditors seek to enforce their contracts, the capital structure, that'll always, of course, affect the equity holders as well. So only time will tell how these fundamental changes will fully cascade through the corporate governance balance constructed over decades uh, in Delaware from the Adolf Burley and Ernest Folk to, you know, Chief Justice Strine. But in the meantime, investors in preferred and common equity, and again, even creditors, 
they ought to prepare for the changing landscape and consider which jurisdictions promote effective contract enforcement and the best corporate governance to protect their interests. And I just the final note, I think that investors who exert influence upon management through negotiated stockholder rights, especially VCs or investors in VCs, ought to immediately reassess Delaware law altogether because uh, management may be able to change not economic terms, but also uh, other limiting factors in, in CODs that might preclude investment in the first place. So, Mr. Franklin, is there a different is there a different jurisdiction than Delaware that you're confident would end up at a you know, with a with a different result than what than what occurred in your case? Well, again, I think Delaware was considered before my case to be the place where you'd want to have a clear contract. Um, I, I know that other jurisdictions are competing for inc the incorporation business, we'll call it. And uh, I know that everyone has had some struggles, be it Nevada or Wyoming, uh, perhaps even the commercial division of New York uh, or New York law, because the commercial division has been kind of erected there under the auspice of kind of being an alternative to Delaware. But, you know, I, I think that jurisdictions that will promote reliable enforcement of contracts uh, are the places where investors ought to want to be. You know, even though this paradigm is in, is in trouble now, you know, Chief Justice Tryon, I think, had it right. I think he was writing as vice chancellor then, but under the LeBeau case, he said that enforcement of contracts as a policy um, had, had wealth-creating and peace-inducing effects. And that's right. Uh, and, and allowing, you know, alternatively now, allowing corporations to undo or rewrite contracts by ratification of things that never happened will undermine especially the peace that people have come to expect in Delaware. So, Mr. Franklin, what, what's the chances that uh, this uh, decision um, may at some point be overturned in Delaware? Well, uh, we, we did appeal the decision from Chancellor Bouchard up to the Delaware Supreme Court, and uh, the Delaware Supreme Court decided that it uh, would just simply affirm it sub silentio, so they didn't write or give reason for their affirmance. Uh, and it's uh, right now it's controlling law. Well, that concludes this podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to thank our special guest, Andrew Franklin, president of UTR LLC. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at Jeff, J-E-F-F -F, at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.